I want you to open your Bibles tonight to the two verses we used last week in our study on the faith that God gives his own, and that's Mark 9 and Matthew 17. Mark 9 and Matthew 17. I do believe that God gives faith to his people. I do not believe that everything that people call faith today has proven to be the faith that God gives. I believe the faith that God gives brings the results that God promises. And it's not a put down if you thought you had faith and it turns out that you really didn't. It's not a put down to have failed like that. I think in our growth, in our progress of becoming what God wants us to be, we might stretch ourselves sometimes and not get where we should have gotten or have what we thought we had and things didn't work out right. That's not a crime. But I do believe this, that when God gives you faith, when you have faith that comes from God, when you have that, it does work. Listen at this in Mark 9, 23. If thou canst believe, what a powerful, powerful verse of Scripture. If thou canst believe, all things are possible. The realm of what is possible lies in whether or not a person can believe. That means there's no problem, no situation, no circumstance that cannot be solved, fixed, or made right if you believe God. If you've got a promise that will apply to that. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus said, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain or this problem, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. In the Christian faith, we're good at telling nothing is impossible with God, that God can do anything. He's omnipotent, and that's all true. But God also turns around and speaks to you, and he says, on the basis of faith, when what you have qualifies as the real deal, Nothing will be impossible to you. Now, that's what I want. I want to know that every time I release my faith, it works. I don't want 80% faith. I don't want 93% faith. I want 100% accurate producing faith. I don't want to get used to it working sometimes and not working at other times. I don't want to take that as just a way of life. I want it to work every time. I want to know that everything that I apply my faith to, that it brings the results that I wanted. I really do want to walk in this earth with a relationship with God, whereby his word is his provision. That if he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. All he needs and all that he says it takes to bring that to pass is me believing. He said the word that goes out of his mouth will not return into him void, but it will accomplish that which he pleases. Now, we have that word in your lap tonight. It's full of all the statements that God has made about what he wants us to have. If you can believe, and he mentions many things. Psalm 103, he will heal your diseases, forgive you of all your iniquities, crown you with loving kindness, so on and so forth. These are promises that God makes. This is the word that God, the Heavenly Father, watches over to perform. This is what he has assigned himself to do on your behalf. And if he wasn't willing to do that, he wouldn't have said that. He said it doesn't work sometimes. He didn't say that. He said, my word most of the time works. There's not a time it doesn't work. And the thing that activates it is what the Bible calls faith. But yet not every person that says they've had faith and thought they were exercising it or went through all the motions and it didn't work, something was wrong. But it wasn't the promises of God. There's nothing wrong with his promises. All the promises are yes, and in Jesus Christ, amen. And when we approach God, we approach him in that name. Because that's what brought us there. That's what secures us. 
That's what benefits us. So he said, if you will believe and not doubt, whatever you ask for will come to pass. Now, we said last week that the kind of faith that we're talking about, the kind of faith I'm describing that is available to us here in this room, that we all at times, too many times, wish we had it. Well, the faith that is available to us comes through hearing of his word, Romans 10 and verse 17. Now, I don't know if I want to labor that logos rhema thing again. You know, 30 years ago, there was a great debate in the faith camps. Camps meeting one on this part of the Mississippi, and there's another one or two out in the western part. And they were saying that you can't just read the word and have faith. That it takes a rhema or harema word in order for the spoken word, the logos, to work. That is, the logos is the spoken word of God. And when that spoken word becomes living and personal, it is called the harema, and that's the word from which we get faith. Because in Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, it's the word harema, harema. And they begin to make a, a sort of a little doctrine out of that. And so those people who were not getting answers to their prayer were told, well, it's not because you're not trying. It's because you don't have a harema word. Because, you see, God speaks many things, but he specifically points out to you and makes personal to you specific things that he said. And that's the only thing that you can have faith in. Now, years ago when that was preached, a lot of folks just threw their hands up in the air because that's what somebody else said. I wanted to find out for myself. I'm glad everybody's on the same page with that, but I thought, I know what somebody said about it, but I want to see it myself because I want to know what I believe. I don't want to believe it because I'm dependent on you to believe it because I want to believe it because I see it in this book. So I began to study it and look at it, and I realized this, that there is an element of truth to this opening of the eyes to see things you couldn't otherwise see. But that's true with knowledge also. You cannot academically pick up a book and know God like that. And we all have an academic mind. We all have a learning mind. There is a natural faith. There is a supernatural faith. There is regular natural knowledge, and then there is supernatural knowledge. All of us have natural knowledge. All of us have a natural faith. I mean, there's things we just grew up with believing. Everything from that proverbial pop machine to starting your car in the morning to assuming that you're going to eat in the evening. I mean, we just believed a lot. We turned on the light switch, turned on the lights. We didn't have to pray about it. We didn't have to say, Lord, I need a word for this. I want to turn this on. I want the lights to work. I need a word. No, you just live like that. That's natural. You exercise your will without even thinking of whether or not it's going to work because you expect it to. That's a natural knowledge that all men have. But you cannot know God, nor can you receive from God with a natural knowledge. You see, faith is not only a natural thing, that is the ability to exercise your will to expect to happen what hasn't yet happened. Are you with me? The light switch is a good example. Or starting your car. How many of you know that people get in their car and start it up, expect it to work? They don't lay hands on their car. I got in my car and I'd come here and it wouldn't work. And I was surprised. I thought, well, put the key in and it was hammer dead. But I had another one. I had some options, so I went out and got in another one and drove here. But it's a natural faith. I put gas in my car. I don't know what the compounds and the chemical makeup and all of that stuff is in gasoline, but it doesn't matter because I believe it works. It's just things I naturally believe. I drive down the road. I believe the guy driving towards me who's driving too fast, I believe he can keep his car on that side of the road. I didn't pull off the road and say, oh, the blood of Jesus bludgeon until he got by. I just believe it. I get on an airplane to fly somewhere. I believe the pilots can fly it. I don't knock on the door and say, can you show me something to prove? No. I just bought my ticket. I sat down, buckled up, and it's out of my hands. I'm totally dependent on who I don't even know going where I can't see where I'm going. I'm totally trusting. See, we all have that. There's not a soul in this room that didn't grow up with that kind of faith. 
or knowledge. You learned your ABCs in school. You learned how to put two and two together. As you grew older, you learned from each other. You learned from society. You learned from just living. You have a natural knowledge. You know not to touch something hot because one time you tried it, and oh, you know not to stick your finger in a light socket. Who hadn't? You know when you shut your car door to get your fingers out of the way, who hadn't been there? You just learn things. Some things we say, well, I know better than that because you learn. You naturally learn. But you can't know God that way. Only by revelation can God make himself known to you because, as Jeremiah said, you cannot, by searching, find out God. God brings us to him as natural men. Doesn't the Bible say we were by nature children of disobedience? Nobody had to train us or teach us. We just naturally did the wrong thing because we were natural men. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4. We were just natural people. I asked you last week, is faith something from inside you or something from outside you? Well, it's both. But faith in God, the faith we're talking about in the church that brings answers, that works miracles and provides healing, comes from outside of you. It has to be given to you. Are you with me? Just like knowledge. The psalmist said, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. We ask the question, can a man then with his eyes open behold wondrous things from God's law? That is by reading it. No, he can read it. He can memorize it. He can tell other people about it. He can become an academic, scholarly, intelligent person about things in the Bible. But he cannot, by that natural means, he cannot know God. He can only know about God. It's when he begins to live that way that he corrupts himself because he lives as a natural man and he can never see the way God sees. He can never understand what God said because what God says is beyond the limits and the realm of what is natural. He can't pick up on divine healing because you can't explain divine healing. You can explain healing with medicine and drugs and with treatments and operations and various procedures because that's natural knowledge. You learn that growing up, that when you feel bad, you go to a doctor. The doctor always knows what to do. He gives you a, a pill or a prescription, and that works, and that's the way natural people live. And anybody that doesn't live that way, even in the church, when people don't do that, we look down on them. There's something wrong with those kind of people because of the influence of natural knowledge in the church. And if we're not careful, we'll give up on this faith life because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. No matter how much study you've done, no matter how keenly intelligent you are, how particularly perceptive you are and clever with words and thinking, it has never entered into that kind of a mind what God has for you. Because your limit is in the realm of what is earthly and where God takes his people into another dimension spiritually. Let me go on. But God, verse 10, has revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Let me ask you another question. Can a man by natural knowledge, scholarly soul, maybe a professor, can he know spiritual or deep things without the Spirit? Now, he can sound like it because he can discuss the matter and talk about it. But it never affects his living and his life because it's not spiritually inspired, it is natural. Therefore, he can explain it. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, listen to this, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now, we're limited, folks, how much we can really know. We can't know any more about God than what the Spirit of God lets us know. 
That's a humbling thought. So that means that everybody in here is equal when it comes to how smart you are, because smart is not what we're talking about. It's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit to illumine us about things we otherwise couldn't know. We couldn't know it. He said, verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, and notice these words, that we might know that we might know the things that are freely given us by the Lord, then is it any wonder why then that people without the Holy Spirit that they can't understand how we can believe in prosperity and healing and, and God's abundance? They can't know these things. They can read about it. They can read that. But all their natural mind does with it is try to figure out how that works. They got to be able to explain how this works. And when they can't explain how that works, they naturally kick it back. Now, we can't explain how it works either, but we don't have to. We just believe that if he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. And that's the difference. We're not trying to make it work. We're not trying to understand it. We're not trying to, to get real shrewd and clever. Oh, I see why he does it. That. Okay. Oh, he did it like this. We don't know how he does it. You could get the headiest people on planet Earth, all 800 of them, and get them in a room somewhere. Smartest people that's ever lived. And give them three months to explain how you raise the dead. And they'll come out of there as dumb as they were when they went in. You see, the Bible says man thinking himself to be wise because he can figure out what he understands. He becomes a fool because what God says that will save him, he can't get it. And therefore, he never gets saved. He never makes it. He gets applauded down here for all of his wisdom and all the books he wrote and all the theories he came up with. But when he dies, he's lost. He couldn't figure out God because he never gravitated beyond the natural man. He never got saved because he couldn't understand how to be born again. Can't go back into your mother again, can you? Nicodemus said that. Jesus said, I'm not talking about a natural thing. I'm talking about a spiritual thing, something from above. God does something from above in a natural body, and he changes you on the inside to where you used to be one way, now you become another way. He makes all things new. But they can't get that. What part of me is made new? You talk about the soul. I took anatomy, and I studied anatomy when I was in college. I never heard our professor, Dr. Lake, ever mention what part of my body was called the soul. He never said, now the soul lies under the spleen. Or the soul was just beside the adrenal cortex inside the kidney here. No, he never said that. I just came to the Lord and he said that we have a soul. Even God mentions, he says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Well, I can't explain that. Can you? There is a spirit in man. Where is it? What part of my makeup is my spirit? Well, it's a spiritual understanding. You can't point your finger to some part of your body and say, this is your spirit and this is your soul. I would say if I was going to define a soul, I'd define my mind because that's where my thinking is. I'm a rational human being. Without Christ, I live as a sensible, reasonable person. I try to keep myself in the things that make sense and keep me from being a freak of nature. I try to accept what's true is what can be proven. Everybody else does. Man, when I got saved, all those people just got all over my case. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual let me say it to you again for the 900th time. You cannot know spiritual things naturally. You can know a lot of things naturally. But there are some things you cannot know unless God reveals it to you by his spirit. You may be very religious, very kind, and very sincere, but you cannot know spiritual things unless they're revealed to you by the spirit of God. You cannot do it. And that makes natural man insulted. 
That's why the Bible tells us that no matter who we are, we must all humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and receive with meekness this engrafted word, which alone can save our souls. They don't understand what save means. Save from what? Save how? It doesn't make sense. So they reject all of that. Listen to this verse 13 in one translation says, but in language taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things and spiritual words. That's what we're supposed to be doing tonight. Explaining spiritual things with revelations and understanding given by the spirit. If we don't, then we're just a bunch of good old boys and good old girls having a good old meeting, trying to be good old people. And we're never going to change. We're never going to be any different next week than we are this week. Because nothing we're hearing is designed to alter the way we are. It just doesn't work like that. In other words, the natural man is a sukikos. You got to like that. The Greek word for soul is psyche. Suke, they call there's a lot of ways they call it. We just call it psyche because it has to do with the mind. Suke. And the natural man is a mind man. The word suke is often translated soul or soulish. Soulish man. After I got saved, there was a popular gospel song that said, Jesus is a soul man. And now that, that was abominable. We didn't know it at the time. We just thought it was wonderful. But I began to look at it. Soul and spirit are two different things. The word of God is sharper, quick, living, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder between what is soul, fleshly, and carnal, and what is spirit of God. See, anything that is soulish is what we also call natural. It's a sense-ruled person, a person who places all of what he's going to be and do on his senses. Hear, taste, touch, smell, feel, and see. I mean, all of that. He's sense-ruled. Sense-ruled person, it would be seen in the person of Thomas in John 20. They said, Thomas, we have seen him. What did Thomas say? Unless I can see the nails in his hands, unless I see the hole in his side, I will not believe. Now, I do believe this. I believe Thomas knew a whole lot about Jesus. I believe he walked personally with him in a crowd that was elite for three years. Thomas was in visual eyesight of Jesus. Almost every day of Jesus' ministry for three years, he was there. He talked to him. He listened to him. He sat in a crowd. Thomas was one of the 12. He knew things we don't know. He saw things we'll never see. He heard Jesus say things that, whoa, wouldn't we like to hear the same things? And yet... Thomas came to this time in his life when Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he said, except I see, except I see, I will not believe. Now, when a man is ruled by this kind of knowledge, this is the man who rejects miracles, who rejects supernatural, because he can't explain it. He cannot put two and two together. If it cannot be verified by something, in this world that is explainable, he cannot receive it. Now, when this man begins to rule in the church, the church dies. It remains a religious institution which people hope they can find something in there in this life to bring comfort and joy and peace and hope. But if what they're hearing is powered by natural knowledge, it's dead. It's a dead letter. It's just a natural thing that they're hearing. And this happens so often because when a man is logical, we applaud people for that. He lives by logic. He lives by senses, common sense, we call it. He lives by logic and senses, and he's reasonable. And his understanding about life is what two and two put together make. And people like that because they can relate to the natural things of this world. And we can all believe we're okay because we understand what two and two is spiritually. 
or religiously, and we become dead people. We have no life because there's no spirit in that. We're just walking around with a, some kind of religious idea. We have nothing. In fact, James 3 says this wisdom comes from beneath. Remember that in James 5? We're talking about people who argue and fuss over stuff. But natural men do that. He said, this kind of wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And the word sensual is our word soulish. The wisdom of man brings us to a place where we're sensual, soulish, or soulish and devilish. So there's not much hope in anything that is a natural mind or by natural means. Because what God has in the church is something spiritual. Now, the natural man will admit to the miracles in the Bible. He has to because he can read them. He has to admit that the world was created. Now, he may not believe it God's way, but he believes we're all here because of something. I mean, when something split and two molecules had affairs with some other kind of gas and two proteins evolved out of that massive gaseous explosion and they begin to mate with other things, the next thing you know, whoa, a star. What about that? Oh, a tree. Wow. Oh, a monkey. And man in his quest to be God, in his quest to be God and think at least on the level that God is, to bring the God of the Bible down to his level and be able to explain, then he becomes as much as God is because he understands everything. He's a natural man. And he appeals to natural minds, and that's why a lot of people like this kind of religion. Natural, dead, we call it liberal religion because it takes you nowhere. It means nothing. It costs you nothing. And the headier these people are, the more they can explain things with some sophisticated way of explaining it, the more people seem to admire that. They seem to like that. But you're dying. And you paint the building and make all the internal parts of it, the architecture, everything is designed to affect your senses, because you want to feel something when you get in that environment, and you want to look at the stained glass and the rays of light coming through and the really high-class organ that's up here playing an old hymn that touches your heart. Nothing wrong with hymns. I'm a hymn man. But everything, the way it's done, the whole program, when you come to the communion hour in a Christian church, you lower the lights so that it takes on some kind of a deep spiritual significance that, you know, without the lights coming down, you wouldn't have done it. Oh, God. And all this manufactured, man-made stuff is touching my senses. In other words, it's touching my soul, making me more dependent on soulish things, and it doesn't touch my spirit because I go home with no conviction. The sermon is a 20-minute double-spaced typewritten thing. I've seen them. It's usually read, so it would be accurate. You never deal with issues because people are so sensitive and so easily ticked off by their senses and they're so me-centered and they're so thin-skinned, which is all about a natural man, and they're all with their arms folded saying, you better say it the way I want it because I came here to have myself pleased by your words. That's why we hired you. You are our servant to make us feel good. If you don't think that's not true, you're not awake yet because that's the way it works. The system I came out of worked that way. It could be in a Baptist. It could be in any of them. But this thing is falling down in the last days. The church has become nothing more than a form. They all have a form of godliness, and because of the natural influence, they all deny the power of it. You know what the Bible told you to do about it? The Bible says, from such, turn away. You turn away from that because there's nothing there for you. And yet we always have those people say, oh, but I'm going to take a gospel to them. And see, if God can't, you can. Or if God doesn't want to, you think you can. Best thing for you to do is do what God said in his word, just leave it alone. Listen to how the preachers appeal to the natural mind with the miracles of God. Take the creation. Creation story. They would say something like this. Let me see if I can act smart for a minute. Now, we all know that the Bible's account of creation is a six-day affair. 
In six days, God made six different things. All of these things are quite significant. The planetary universe out there is so vast that the, the best we can do with the best stuff we've got can only discover a little piece of it. It's way bigger than what we thought. And I guess <laughs> some of those poor souls think that God made all of that in one day. Or all the grass and the trees and things like that, you know, that God made that in one day. Or all the water and the oceans and all of the divisions. And then God made all the fish and all the animals in one day. Well, you know, that's nice to think like that if you want to. But look, let's face it. Now, here comes a natural man. That's not possible. That's not possible. Now, here's a picture they actually have. God is out here working. One day when the earth was void and without form, then there was probably nothing because out of nothing he made everything. In the beginning, there was just God, nothing else. I can't go beyond that, and I'm already over my head. But it's just God. And God in creation began with a word. God had on the inside of him a picture of what he wanted that was not yet. And God framed all of that with a word. And so God spoke a word universe. There had never been one. There was no word for universe. There was no book to be read about a universe yet. But in the beginning, God made what he wanted with a word. He said, universe or world or whatever. He didn't say, okay, there's one star. Here's another star. God isn't working to make anything. God is bigger than his need to work. He simply spoke. Be. And he said, that's enough for one day. The next day, let me make some light. Sun, boom, moon, that'd be enough. We'll come back tomorrow. Trees, fields, grass, mountains. Now, the academic man, the intelligent man, laughs. But not near as much as he that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. See, a natural man thinking himself to be wise has become a fool. Now, he is a fool in the eyes of God because he has rejected God and his ways because it doesn't match his way that he thinks it should be done. So he's a natural man, and he's a wise man in his own sight, and his wisdom has turned him away from God. It never occurs to him, if God is the God he says he is, could he not make all of this in one day if he is an unlimited power? Could he say, be, and could he? He's not trying to make it work. He didn't look at his clock and say, oh, I've only got three hours left. i got to hurry. He didn't do that. He just said, be. Now, the only people that can believe this are simpletons like us because we are willing to unhook a natural mind, which is in this life. We have to prove everything or we look like fools, and we're accepting as true simply what God said without any proof of it, except I'm living in it. I don't need to go to a creation museum. It's a very interesting place to go, but that doesn't make me believe this. If I'd never been there, I'd believe this. Because in my eyes, God is big enough, mighty enough, powerful enough, and certainly wise enough to make all of this perfect. He just made it with a word. In the beginning was God. The word was with God. The word was God. And God made everything that is by the power of his word. And isn't it amazing, this is not our message tonight, but isn't it amazing God takes that same word and offers it to you as something that he wants to dwell in your heart so that you can live according to it? Who will? It doesn't make enough sense to the world out there. Who wants to go where they clap their hands and shout and scream and dance and, and go around? Who wants to do that? The natural man says, well, I think God likes us to be still and be quiet. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's what we sang in the Presbyterian church. The Lord is in his holy temple. Shut up. Put your hands in your pocket. Because that's the conception, perception, that a natural man has of God. He is just a natural being like us. In fact, man makes doctrine saying, well, I don't think God would want to do that. I mean, why would God want to do that? So he makes God the way he wants him to be. He's a natural man. That's why the church can't believe today. How about the Red Sea? Don't you like the Red Sea? Out of Egypt long ago, the Israelites were red. By a mighty miracle, they all were kept and fed. Through the Red Sea they did go, the waters spread apart. And God gave Sister Miriam a dance down in her heart. Oh, I got nine verses. We ought to sing all of those some night. The Red Sea. Well, to some who don't want it to be an actual sea because that's unexplainable. It was a creek. Well, if you're out west, it was a creek. Or if you're up north, there's a brook. Or if you're in the south, there's a branch. So we got a creek, creek, brook, branch that the Israelites walked through. They just kind of pulled their robes up and splashed through that creek, you know, because they say, the natural man says, there is no way you could come to a, a Red Sea with, you know, 100 feet deep and the waters just spread apart. That's impossible. That's what I'm talking about. There's no explanation for this. An east wind all night long. Didn't have to, but it did. It was a wind that made the bed dry. So they didn't go through their, call it muck on the bottom of the river. It went through dry. Yeah, but it was really not a red sea. First Corinthians 10 and verse 1, I surely would like to think the New Testament had something to say about it. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be what? In Kentucky, we call that ignorant. Ignorant. I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers run to the cloud, all pass what? Not over. Through. How many of you have ever walked across a creek, creek, brook, or branch? Most of you have. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you don't want to get wet, you just kind of do like it there, look for the rocks, you know. I mean, how else did Jesus walk on the water? He knew where all the rocks were out there. You know? When his Bible says through the Red Sea, it meant they went through it, not over it. They didn't go around it. They went through it. To go through it, you have to face the thing, and it's over your head because you've got to go through it. And these Israelites saw that. A bunch of them. A city the size of a little bit would take most of the day to get all these people through it. And they took their time. They had all these carts. They had all these cattle. They had children. They had all their possessions and half of what the Egyptians had because they won't build a tabernacle with it. So they had all this stuff. Took them a long time. And to keep the mighty Egyptian army from just taking over, this pillar came between them and the army so that they couldn't do nothing about it. The best devised plans of man are foolishness with God because he can confound the wisest of men. And it'll make all their plans fruitless. We read it throughout the Bible. And through the Red Sea they did go, the waters spread apart. Then the Egyptians went through there, and as they got in there, all of them, I don't know how wide it was, but it must have been pretty wide for an army. For an army. How many of you know it was wide? And boy, these bad-tempered Egyptians, they had their jaws tight, and they ran through there. The water just came over them. How did the water stay in a heap like that? What are you going to say, some kind of planetary alignment? What's the natural explanation? The seminarian's kid I knew one time, he had a natural explanation. Or this is a narrative that was added by the translators to make it look better than it was. But you still got that problem if it was just made up. What happened to the Egyptian army? What happened to them then? Did they actually chase them out there? The next thing you know, you're going to tell me most of the Bible is either made up or added to, and it's not true. And if it's not true, faith doesn't come by hearing something that's not true. The Bible becomes a myth. It was said the way it was said so that we can try to see the extravagance of God and what he can do, but it didn't really happen that way. Well, then the book's a liar. 
God's playing games with us. No, you can't explain how the Red Sea opened up. You can only believe it happened. You weren't there. You didn't see it. How do you know? How about Jericho? Did you ever think about Jericho, the natural man? You ought to hear the explanations that liberals give for this stuff. It's kind of humorous, but it's sad that people listen to these people. Some of them are notable. It's hard for a man who doesn't believe that miracles can happen the way they happen in the Bible, and he tries to turn away from those things and explain that to his people because he don't want them believing in miracles. Just like Jesus said about Pharisees, you not only will not enter in yourself, but you won't allow them to enter in either. You're making them twice as bad as you are. Jericho is just 12-foot thick walls. You could ride a chariot across the top of it, they say. And after several days of walking around, the whole camp walked around the place, blew the trumpet, the ram's horn, a bunch of them, a whole bunch of them blew it. And the Bible says the walls fell down flat. Well, listen to me. If there was enough power in a ram's horn and enough vibrations, as they try to explain, enough vibrations were sent to those walls that like an earthquake, they began to shake the ground and the walls fell down. Well, then it was a natural event. There was nothing supernatural about it. If it was a reed sea or a little bitty branch they went through, then it's a natural narrative. There wasn't nothing supernatural about it. Praise the Lord. Ain't nothing to that. No, sir. The kind of faith that God gives, God will bring us to these miracles. And sometimes he'll challenge you, well, do you believe this? Because if I did it once, will you believe I can do it again? You'll never have to turn to the arm of man if you believe the words that God speaks to you. Jericho fell down flat, not because of the skilled playing of the priest on the ram's horn, not because everybody went, hey! A million people shout, hey! Uh-uh. He just said, you go around there on the seventh day, you blow the trumpet, and the walls will fall down. God said, I'll see to it. And they fell down. It was natural in the fence that they walked around it, but it was supernatural in the fact that when they did what they did and it couldn't happen without God, the walls just simply fell down flat. How do these people explain the virgin birth? What about the virgin birth? A virgin is a girl who has never known any kind of relationship with a man. And people are trying to, in history, of trying to say, well, Mary was just a young maiden, like the reverse standard version says. I'm excuse me, the RSV version said that a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. A young woman doesn't mean she was a virgin. She might have messed up once in her life, but she's just a young woman. Then there's nothing supernatural about the virgin birth, and there's no such thing. It's no virgin birth. Then Christ was an illegitimate child. But the fact is, the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7, 14 for young woman, the Hebrew word Alma or Alma means to conceal or to hide. It means she was a girl that was kept out of public view so the guys couldn't check her out. She was kept under her father's watchful eye until the time for her marriage when that was arranged. I still think that's a good idea for mom and dad to go find his daughter. I think that's the best way. And so when the time came, he said, okay, darling, you're going to marry that one back there, that one over there. Yeah, he's your husband. And she never revealed herself to him until after they were married. And they had a, a little garment that on their wedding night that she slept on that was to verify that she was a virgin, and she kept that. If she was ever accused of not being, she could show them that cloth. It proved here that this is what she slept on. This is what all that happened, and this is the cloth that verified she was a virgin. That's in your Bible. Nothing wrong with sins. That's in the Bible. Well, it's not possible that a woman who's never had sexual relations with a man could conceive. Well, let's say it like this. It is possible. Because God has a way of doing it. Man doesn't, but God does. And God did. And she began to have a child growing in her body without ever knowing a man. 
When Joseph found out about it, he was going to put her away because surely she's been with somebody. It was an angel who spoke to him and said, no, she's been with nobody. The life in her is given by the Holy Ghost. Such a thing had never been known. Here's a woman bearing a child without a man. How can this be? And most of the church will not believe that. They simply believe she was a young woman, a really classy young girl, really nice and very spiritual. Not perfect, but very spiritual. And, you know, she had a baby and Joseph went through all of this and so on and so forth. That Jesus had a natural daddy. Then if Jesus had a natural daddy, he inherited his daddy's natural sin. And he is not qualified, therefore, to be a sin bearer because he's imperfect. He needs to be saved. Because all men born into this world by natural means need to be saved. Natural meaning a father and a mother. But he didn't have a natural father. His father was God. What do you do with that? So these people say, well, it's just not possible. I cannot believe that a young girl like this could do such a thing. Then what will you do with the resurrection? Most people can't believe that either. Oh, they holler and dress up for it on Easter Sunday. But they don't really believe it. That Jesus died on a cross, gave up the ghost. They even saw the spear speed this thing up because it was getting late. They wanted him to die because the Sabbath day was coming. They got to get him off of there. They carried him, laid him in a tomb, rolled a great stone over the tomb. Matthew's account was that whenever they came to the tomb to see the tomb in Matthew 27, verse 60, said the stone was rolled away. Let me tell you something. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out of there. Jesus wasn't limited by rocks and by dirt over his head. When he was raised from the dead, he just went in a spiritual body through all of that. Just like when he appeared in the upper room, he just appeared. He didn't go around trying to look, watch this boy, I'm going to walk through these walls. He didn't try to do that. He just appeared in the upper room. He had a spiritual body. Amazing. But yet he could eat. He could eat food. But he had a spiritual body. You think, where did natural food go in a spiritual body? I don't know. I don't have to know because I know I'm saved without knowing that. But the resurrection, how do you explain a dead man coming to life? Who can explain that? The universities and the scientists are working all over the world to make something live again, and they can't explain the mystery of the last breath. A lot of people have been in accidents and, and electrocuted or in some way hurt and harmed and quit breathing for a while, and they've been able to start the breathing process again, but they can't explain that there are those situations where when a man dies, there's nothing you know that can make him live again. He's dead. He's gone. You cannot make life come back again. The Bible said the spirit goes back to God who gave it. And yet here's Jesus who came back to life. How do we know he did? Because he said he did. He appeared to all of his disciples. He appeared to lots of people. They saw him whom they saw crucified. He appeared to them. They looked at his hands. They saw the nails in his feet. He showed them his side. He's the one. He's alive. He's alive. And if he wasn't alive, we got no business being here tonight. Because if this isn't true, we're wasting all of our time. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection isn't true, then we're fools for being here. Our hope is based on the fact that everything he said was absolutely divine and holy, proven by the fact that God raised a perfect man who said perfect words from the dead, verifying that he indeed was divine and he ever lives. If you can't believe that, I don't think he can be saved. I don't think he can be saved. A natural man tries to explain that away so that heady people can say, well, you know, I don't think it's so important for us to believe that, you know, all of this stuff about the grave and the tomb and the clothes wrapped. I don't, I don't know where to believe all that. I just think God wants us to love people. That's a natural mind. That's making you think that you don't need Jesus and what he did to be saved. All you need to do is have a form of love for people, and God has to accept that. And people believe that. They take this book, and they close it. And they go about doing things that surely God must accept is true because they think if I do enough good things, God will have to accept me. And that's a natural way of works. God rejects all of their works, all of them. He said, all your righteousness, 
are as filthy rags. They're rejected. What about Jesus walking on the water? How do explain that? Well, he actually didn't really. Oh, yes, he did. The Bible said he did. He walked on the water. Said, so, well, he knew where all the stumps were. No, there wasn't any stumps out there. I've been in, I've seen the Sea of Galilee. There's no stumps out there in the deep, halfway in the middle of it. I've been out there too. There's no places out there where you can say, where's that other one at? Besides that, the wind was high and the waves were flopping around. And it was dark or barely light. <laughs> How'd he do that? Let's put it like this. If he made water, he can walk on it. If by a word he created water, then he's master over the water. And if he wants to walk on water, he can. Or if he wants to walk on air, he can. He's not limited. How do you turn that same water into wine? That's not possible. Well, they say, you know, it really, yes, it was. How do we explain that? We don't explain these things. All we say is that this is what God did. We believe in miracles. We believe in the supernatural. I have no natural explanation for the supernatural things that God has because there is no such thing. Listen to me, all of you. I cannot have the faith that moves mountains if everything is brought down to a natural level like so many Christians do. Well, you know, the doctor said, and I, you know, they told me that the, your hope is in what somebody said on this earth. What about God? Have you been sitting in a church or in this one or any of them for all these years and you haven't gotten away from natural things? Of course you have natural knowledge and you live, but there is a faith that comes with the knowledge that God gives, which is supernatural. Oh, Jesus. What about David and Goliath? Is that really real? Is it possible? Is there anybody in this room is 13? Hunter, are you 13? I got one. Anybody else? All right, let's take Hunter. Now, here comes Hunter. He's been playing his harp for Saul. He, Saul gets messed up, so he plays the harp and calms him down. He goes home, feeds the father's sheep. His daddy, Jesse, comes down. And he says, David, go take these cheeses and these loaves to your brothers. They're in a battle down there facing the Philistines. Take it down there. David goes down there. He's just a boy. This Hunter. I mean, he's just a boy. 13-year-old boy has a good time in life just being alive. Just being somewhere, he's happy. So he walks out there, and here's this great Israeli army out here, and then on the other side, there's this other army with a big slab of a human being out there hollering at him. And David said, who's that? Who's that guy? Did you hear what he said about defying the armies of the living God? Who is that? Shut up, David. What do you know about anything? Well, he has no right to talk against us like that. And so somebody told the king, said, come here, boy. He said, what are you talking about? I said, he has no right to say that. Why doesn't somebody go out there and whoop him, deal with him? Why indeed? Do you think amongst all the armies of Israel, there was anybody there that could bench press 150 pounds? Was there anybody in that crowd that could bench press 200 pounds? Was there anybody in a Ever how many thousand soldiers we had, I'm one of them, uh, that we had. Was there anybody there that could throw a javelin 50 yards? Was there anybody there that could run 100 yards in 12 seconds? That's not exactly swift. It's pretty good, you know, faster than I could go. We have enough physically equipped people that somebody, if he was a hero with just a degree, he'd go out there and do something about it. But see, he sees the giant naturally. His bulk his size, his mass, they say he was nine feet tall. Now, I can reach eight and a half feet tall, so you got to go six inches above that up in the ceiling there. That's how tall he was. I hate to guard him playing ball. <laughs> Strong. He had his spear was that big around. He could throw that thing. He could throw through three or four people, I suppose. He had big sword, big helmet. You've seen his pictures. <laughs> That's what he looked like. And my grandson Hunter said, I'll fight him. Oh, you're just a boy. He said, I might be a boy, but I've killed a lion and I killed a bear trying to get my father's sheep. And he ain't no different than them lion and a bear. He's just a human being. See, this boy is not looking at this thing naturally. He couldn't be because he's looking at it from the fact that the almighty God can put him down and he doesn't have a right to talk that way to us. A little Hunter walking out there compared to a guy that big, why we'd say, poor little boy. 
But this fellow's about 12 feet big on the inside. He's looking down at that giant. Who do you do? Defy the armies of God. They put his suit on him. They put man's ways on him. Put that big armor on him. He said, I can't fight in this stuff. I don't know how to use that stuff. I don't need that. What are you going to fight him with? What I killed a lion with. He walked down there to the creek. Looked at that giant. He wasn't scared. He wasn't going, oh, oh, he's so big. He just got him five smooth stones. He had four brothers. So he got five stones <laughs> and a slingshot, probably about that long. I've seen them do this when I was over. I saw some kids doing it. Well, they're pretty accurate. I mean, they can hit things that you think, wow, and fast. And so this giant started talking about him. Well, they sent a dog out here to me. And David said, you come to me with your worldly instruments, your swords and your shields. He said, I come to you in the name of the living God, and this day I will take your head from your shoulders. Now, apparently he wasn't afraid of the giant. But he put that rock in his sling and said, hang on, Bubba, because this is your last day. And he let that rock go, and it hit him right between the eyes. How can this be? Is this a supernatural event or is it all natural? Now think about that. There's nothing supernatural about a rock, is there? Nothing supernatural about a slingshot or the ability to throw it. There's nothing supernatural about a nasty man hollering at God's people. Isn't it possible for him to hit that? This was a natural event with spiritual ramifications. The fact that we don't have to be afraid of what's confronting us. We don't have to sit around with 50,000 soldiers over there dreading, oh, he's so big, he's so big. The doctor said there's no hope, and I don't know the money's not coming in to be on time. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You're looking at the world like a grasshopper. Oh, we're just little grasshoppers. We can't do anything. Wait a minute. What did your father say you can do? You can do all things how? Through Christ who what? And that rock hit Bubba right there. One commentary said this giant, because of his size, he was a freak of nature. No joke. But they said that Bubba had all these tumors on his body. And he had one big soft spot there that when the rock hit that, it just had an effect of just paralyzing his body where he couldn't move. He just went down. So, you know, it was even more natural than you thought it was. And David went over there and took a natural sword and cut his natural head off. He said, y'all turn your head. And he ended this reign of giants over Israel. They got his brothers later. But people can't understand that. They can't understand how this is possible, how this could have ever happened. Any more than today, people can understand tongues, speaking in tongues. I remember years ago, there was a, a certain church that liked to debate, liked to argue. And on the radio one time, they said they went to one of these tongue-speaking churches and they made some recordings of these tongues. I remember listening. I thought, boy, this ought to be good. And they were what I would call investigators of linguistic authenticity. They were going to prove that tongues was not valid. And so they got these recordings. They got their linguistic experts here. Gumaharoboga. What's that mean? Well, there's no such word as gura. Is there any language in the world that says gura? And we're looking at them and we're thinking, it's not a natural language. You can't explain it naturally. All you can do is accept it. Having faith for the Holy Ghost means you accept what God gives you. You speak your words by faith. Well, I keep saying the same thing over again. Quit thinking about it. You might just be saying, praise God, praise God, praise God. That's good. Giddy, 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 giddy. All right. But do giddy, giddy. You can't explain the gifts of the Spirit. How do you explain a word of knowledge? Well, some would call it fortune telling. You know, a word of knowledge pertains to past things, things that have already happened that can be known. And sometimes people tell you what you did, what you were thinking, what you had for breakfast or whatever, where I saw you, I see you. Then they often follow that up with a word of wisdom, which is not yet happened, but which is prognosticated, forecast. This is what the Lord showed me. You are going, and here's a word of wisdom. How do you explain that? Well, anybody can imitate it. 
They do it all the time at big church meetings, but it's seldom ever real. I'm not against gifts of the Spirit. You know, we seldom do that stuff here. I wish we did. But I'm not dependent on that to verify not only my relationship with God or being a charismatic. I've heard people prophesy nothing. Does that make us a spiritual church? Thus saith the Lord, oh, ye my people, I love you so, and, 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 and I'm loving you more, and oh, ye my people, go forward and love me. And oh, ye, you know, I've heard things like that all my saved life. You know, that doesn't make us a charismatic church. Anytime there's a gift operating, it usually has a directive, either an information, a revealing of God to his people about something, about us, about himself, about tomorrow. A prophetic utterance can have both a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom, but it's God speaking prophetically to his people spontaneously without study. And God does that to either inform us, prepare us, or rebuke us. You can't explain how that works. William Branham was a unique man in his best days. A man who followed him around and spoke with him, Ern Baxter. One of the greatest, best preachers I ever heard ever in my life was Ern Baxter. I read an article of him when he traveled with Branham. He said of the thousands of times that he dealt with people at the prayer line, said he never missed it. Now, that's the kind of faith I want. Never missed it. Didn't tell somebody something that wasn't true. Everybody he touched, everybody he talked to, everybody he had a word for, it was exactly right. He said in all the years we traveled together, the thousands of times he did that, he never got it wrong. Now, that's supernatural. You can get it right sometime by just, you were thinking this morning about something. Well, that's right. I guess through the years, one of the reasons that the gifts of the Spirit have lost a lot of their sheen with me is I've seen so much fleshly, natural pushing that stuff forward. I'm for it. Trust me, I am. There was time in my life, every week we got together, I did something. And I remember the time I prophesied to a young couple that were messing around with each other, and we didn't know they were, that God sees your relationship and he's pleased with you. I learned later what they were doing was something he wasn't pleased with. And I thought, no more, not until I know it's God. You see, you're playing with people's lives. But a spiritual man is a spiritual discerner too. Because the more I think God begins to show us things and teach us things, and we begin to see what God sees, the more we become discerning people. And we realize that not everything somebody said, not everything somebody's doing is right. But listen, back where we started, when God gives you faith, it means that you take God at his word. God created the world. He opened the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho happened like they did. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, water to wine, walking on the water, Noah's Ark. Every miracle in the Bible happened just the way God said it. I don't need any human explanation of that. I don't need any article to verify. I don't, you don't have to discover the Ark somewhere for me to know there was one. They found the Ark. They found the Ark. I don't care if they did. It was there anyway. They found the Ark down in Egypt. No. That'd be somewhere else. I believe it before I ever heard that. I believe it simply because God said it. I am willing to submit my mind, my ideas, my body. I think the Bible teaches us that in Romans 12, 1, present yourself a living sacrifice unto God. It's a reasonable thing for God to ask you to see it his way, think his way, and walk his way, which is what the faith walk is. It's walking in the light that God gives. I'm going to begin next week right here with what does a soulish evangelist preach? What does a modern-day liberal evangelist, unbelieving evangelist, what does he preach when he goes to all these places in the world? What does he say? Let me give you one little hint, and then I'm going to stop. You know why he doesn't preach healing? Because he's in a poor part of the world, and there's no hospitals there. Praise the Lord. Because God's never needed that stuff to heal his people. Never once. Amen. Tonight, we thank you for your word. We thank you for watching over it to perform it. 
we thank you that we are willing to have a simple mind like a child, just like a child, to come to Jesus and take him at his word, just like a child. And we thank you, Lord, that nothing you've said is hard to believe. We just have to take you at your word. All of our tomorrows, you're already in them. They're all taken care of. All of our needs, physical, mental, spiritual, financial, you've already given us, already given us a word to fix and make all of that good. You've already done it. Thank you that we don't have to figure out how you're going to do this because you've already done it. And tonight with Thanksgiving, we thank you for your word and for all the blessings you've given to us in all these years. Now, my prayer is that as these folks leave the room, they might begin to realize that I'm a spiritual individual. I must begin to see things the way God sees things and think the way God thinks so that a spirit of faith might live in me. And in Jesus' name, I ask you to do that, and I thank you for it. Amen.